Amen. Thank you so much, worship team. Well, good morning. Okay, I was making sure that it worked for me as well as it does for Pastor Chris. Um, So if you've been around church for any amount of time, you know that this is typically the part of the service where one of the pastors comes up and gives a message. We call it a sermon. But I wanted to uh, throw in a little plot twist this morning change things up a bit. You guys know I like to do that. So I actually, I, I have a sermon prepared, but, but I actually want to hear from one of you guys this morning. I know some of you sit here every morning and you think, man, if I could just have the chance to get up there and give a sermon, what I wouldn't say. So uh, for those of you who you've got your sermon in your back pocket, I, I need help from someone this morning. Um, I want you to preach the sermon, but it is Christmas time, so I will need someone who feels like they know the Christmas story. Some of you are like, is she kidding? I'm not, but I'll make it easy for you. I will help you out. So I just need someone who feels like they know the Christmas story pretty well. I see hands going up all across the room. One brave soul, just one brave soul. Someone who would say, I know the Christmas story pretty well. All right, Mark, come on up. I mean, you might as well. Right in the middle, you just sit down from singing and and you're up here ready to to preach the sermon. Way to go. Let's give Mark a round of applause. All right, Mark, we're going to tell the Christmas story. I know you've been waiting for this day. Oh, yeah. All, All week long. You've been looking forward to this. So we're not going to tell the whole story, though. We're just going to kind of get the highlights here. And Mark's going to help me out. He knows the story in and out, all the facts very well. He's very confident. So without further ado, the Christmas story as told by Jessica and Mark. Once upon a time, a long time ago, there was a young woman named... Oh, Mary. Mary, that's right, Mary. And Mary was... Uh, a virgin? That's right, she was a virgin. She was unmarried, she was a virgin. She had never been with a man, but she was engaged to a man named... Joseph? Joseph, that's right. See, you're doing pretty good at this. She was engaged to a man named Joseph. Well, Mary was a very righteous woman, and one day she had an angel come to her and say, Behold, I bring tidings of great joy. Unto you a son will be born, and you will name him Jesus. There we go. Something along those lines. I think I had a good pick here. So the angel says this to Mary, and she says, Okay. <laughs> AKA, how can this be? Uh, yeah. Right. I am, yep. I, I'm. Yep. <laughs> how, how can this be? I am a virgin. There we go. Yeah. There we go. She does say okay later on, but how can this be? I'm a virgin. 
And at this point, the angel says, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, a.k.a. God is going to do this. It's not going to be you that does this. God is going to do this. And of course, Mary's trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, The angel says he's actually going to be the son of God. Now, Mary is really trying to figure out all of this. She's kind of getting nervous, I guess. But she says, like you said earlier. Okay. (laughs) She says, okay. But this whole not being married thing, it's, it's going to be kind of complicated for her to explain to her family, let alone to Joseph. But she says... Uh, nah, hold on. Okay, okay. Okay. She yep, says okay. okay. She okay. says okay. Well, meanwhile, Mary's betrothed, the guy she's engaged to, named... Joseph. Joseph has a dream, and in this dream, he has an angel come to him and say... All right, so your fiancé is uh, is pregos. Don't worry about it. This is all part of the plan. Uh, It's the the child is from the Holy Spirit, and he's going to be the Messiah. All right, there we go. (laughs) And so so Joseph says... All right. (laughs) Well... Fast forward a little bit. Mary and Joseph, they decide to stick it out. They find themselves on the back of a... Donkey. Headed to a city called... Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Well, they get to Bethlehem. And unfortunately, they find out that... Uh, There is nowhere to stay. Nowhere to stay. No room in the inn. Well, fortunately, one guy, one innkeeper, has the clarity of mind to see this pregnant young lady and say, I know, I'll offer her the only accommodations that I have. All right, so I've got this stable out back. Um, It's a roof. Basically, it's a roof. It's, It's some covering... Not very great. It's where the hay's at, the animals. I mean, it's, it's not really great accommodations for a pregnant woman. But Mary says... Okay. She says, okay. <laughs> and they go, and they have a baby boy in this unconventional setting, and they name him... Jesus. Jesus. They name him Jesus... And they have all kinds of visitors that come to visit them, including... Uh, let's see, uh, some shepherds, uh, three magi, kings, wise men, whatever you want to call them. Which, of course, we know they didn't come till later in no, the story, later, but, th- but, but that's okay. They still yeah. came. And we even had angels who were telling about this, this incredible thing, this miraculous birth. Angels out speaking to the shepherds in the field, and they said... Oh, hold on. I'm not glory, even joking. Glory, glory. Glo- right, glory to God in the highest. Glory <laughs> yeah. to God. And peace on earth, the Savior is born. There we go, there we go. <laughs> and this is about the part where we say, this is the Christmas story. Can we give Mark a round of applause? Good job, Mark. You did a really good job. <clears throat> now, we know the story, Right? I mean, Mark did a pretty good job of it. He, he knew the, the lines and the characters, and even though he forgot a couple parts, he did really great. He really did. But we know the story. It kind of just tells itself, right? 
It just, we know all the characters. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably watched like the Charlie Brown version. You know how it goes. It almost seems like it tells itself, right? But what if I told you that there's a part of the Christmas story that without it would drastically change the whole story as we know it. It's an important plot twist. You know what a plot twist is, right? It's a part of the movie or the book or the story where everything seems to be going in one direction and then all of a sudden something changes and it changes everything. That's a plot twist. There's a plot twist in the Christmas story, and in fact, without it, we wouldn't really even have a Christmas story. We didn't cover it in our retelling of the story here, but I'm going to read it to you. And, and I know this is, again, a little plot twist. I don't want you to open up your Bibles just yet. I want you to just listen in fact, I know sometimes it can be hard to listen when you're not reading something on the screen. So if it helps, you can just close your eyes. Just don't fall asleep. And just listen to this crucial part of the Christmas story found in the book of Matthew. Now, brace yourselves. It's a little long, but it's mind-blowing. So, without further ado, from the book of Matthew. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah. Hold on, it gets better. A descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nishan. Nishan was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the king, father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiachin and his brothers, born at the time of the exile to Babylon. We're almost done. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiachin was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elud. Elud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Now I know that's mind-blowing. It's, it's, just, it's just crazy when you stop and you think about all that happened in those verses there, right? Some of you are not quite as thrilled as I, as I was hoping, um, but maybe this isn't a story that 
quite tells itself the same way as the rest of the Christmas story, right? It seems like it's pretty straightforward. It's literally a list of names. But, plot twist. This is a list of names that changes everything. It's a list of names that, again, without it, we would have no Christmas story. See, this morning, I want to take a look at those names that weren't supposed to be in there. I mean, they shouldn't be in that list, at least not according to the people of Jesus' day. See, there's five names in that list nestled into the grand list of names, people like David and Solomon and Hezekiah, people who did something. And nestled in there, these people with authority and power are five unlikely names. You probably caught them. I, I kind of tried to make them stand out a little. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and Mary. Five women included in this list of names whose existence was crucial to the Christmas story that we know. And you have to understand, see, you don't typically see women in a list of names like this. This was reserved for the men, for the husbands, for the sons and the fathers. You don't see women's names in genealogies listed like this. It's very unusual because in their culture, men were the ones who had authority and had position and value and purpose. Women had babies and raised them, that was their role. That was their purpose in society. But right at the very beginning of the Christmas story, we're already getting a glimpse that this isn't some ordinary story. It's like when you look under the Christmas tree and there's that one present underneath there kind of pushed to the back and it's wrapped in different paper. You know the, you know the, the, the present, right? You know you see it, and you know mom only uses that paper for special gifts. Puts a special gold boat. Maybe it's just my mom. I don't know. But you know, without even opening that present, that that one is something special before you even open it. This story is something special before you even get into the rest of it. Now, right at the beginning, we've got a plot twist. But not only that, these women who were included in the story, they've got some, um, we'll call it colorful pasts, some colorful stories. They're, they're, they're not the most boring stories in the world, I can tell you that. See, let me tell you a little bit about these women. They each had a life story that in some way was kind of just telling itself. You know the kind. They're, they're what we call painfully predictable stories. Maybe you haven't heard it put that way, but it's like when you're watching family home videos and you see a little kid walking up to the Christmas tree. I have one now. I've seen this. I have video proof. And they grab a branch. You know what's going to happen right? They grab the branch, 
and then the Christmas tree falls over, it falls on the kid, the kid starts crying and Christmas is ruined. You know that's gonna happen as soon as you see the kid grabbing for the branch. It's painfully predictable. Or like Hallmark movies. You know how that movie's gonna end. As soon as it starts, right? You've got a small town girl, she heads to the big city to pursue her dream job. And while she's there, she has this coworker who's a big city slicker and she can't stand to be around him. But as soon as you see them meet, you know, ah, there's true love. They're gonna fall in love and there's, there's gonna be some bashing of heads. They're gonna talk about how much they hate each other and then they're gonna fall in love. There's gonna be this snowy, beautiful Christmas scene, Christmas miracle, and it's gonna end with a kiss with a, a bow tied on top the end. Right, nobody watches a Hallmark movie for a plot twist. <laughs> you don't go into it like, oh man, I wonder what's gonna happen. This is gonna, you know exactly what's gonna happen. It's painfully predictable. See, these stories, they just kind of tell themselves. These women, their stories, one way or another, kind of tell themselves. You know where they're headed. They're painfully predictable, not because they're ordinary. Oh, no, they are far from ordinary, some of them. Some of them are, are very, like I said, colorful. But everyone could see where their stories were headed because they're just painfully predictable. Let's take Tamar. Her story can be found in the book of Genesis chapter 38. I don't want you to turn there this morning, although I do encourage you to read up on her story. It's found in Genesis 38, and it's actually a really tragic story. So I'm not going to go into all the details, but she's an outsider, and she marries a guy who ends up being a jerk. In fact, more than a jerk, he's wicked. In fact, he's so wicked that God kills him. So then she marries another guy, actually the guy's brother, and guess what? He ends up being a jerk. In fact, more than a jerk. He's incredibly wicked, and so God kills him. Start to get the gist of this. Well, then the two brothers' father, Judah, sees what's coming. So Tamar comes to him and she says, hey, do you have another son? Well, Judah says, I do have another son, but I know how this goes. You marry my son and he dies. You marry my son and he dies. So I'm going to tell Tamar to go live with her father as a widow and wait until my other son is old enough to wed, but I'm actually not going to let her marry him because I don't want him to die. It's painfully predictable, you see? And so the story goes on. It just gets worse after this. You can, again, read it on your own. But Tamar, being rejected, goes and lives back with her father. She carries this mark of shame. People probably think, oh, there goes Tamar, the widow maker. And, and her narrative seems doomed to be a story of, of shame, rejection and loneliness. I mean, you know the sort. It's the kind where something bad is happening around every corner, and you don't know exactly what's going to happen next in their life, but it seems like it's always bad, and you know it's going to be bad. She's a woman that just can't get a break in life. 
And even when it seems like things are looking up, they just kind of spiral right back down. So that's Tamar, a painfully predictable story. Then we have Rahab. Now, Rahab is what we might call a woman of the night, a prostitute. So, again, without going into detail, we kind of know what her story looks like, if you know what I mean. We don't have to read all of her story to know it's kind of on this vicious cycle, heading in the same direction It's painfully predictable. And then there's Ruth. Ruth is another foreigner, so she definitely does not belong in that list of names that I read earlier. And guess what? Her husband dies too. So once her husband dies, her life, according to their culture, is essentially over because she didn't have kids, she didn't have a husband, she didn't have uh, any living relatives that she knew of. And so as a young woman with no husband, no kids, no prospects of marriage that she knew of, she finds herself working in the fields, just trying to survive to make ends meet. She's kind of the epitome of the working woman, just really trying to keep food on the table. You probably know the sort, or maybe you are the sort. Then there's the story of Bathsheba the wife of Uriah. Now Bathsheba's story is a little bit different because it actually seems like she's got everything going for her. She's got a husband, he's respectable, he's a soldier in the king's army. It seems like her whole life is is set up and good to go. But then her husband goes off to war. And while he's at war, she's bathing on her roof because that's what people did. She wasn't doing anything wrong or scandalous. She was just taking a bath. And this king is a little too greedy. He sees her because his palace looks over all of the other houses. And he sees her from his palace and he goes, huh, I like that. I want that. Bring her to me. So he sends his men out. They bring her back. And he defiles her. He sleeps with her, her being a married woman, sends her back home, and she finds out she's pregnant. Well, David, if you know the story, tries to cover it up. It backfires in his face. Everything just kind of blows up. You can find the whole story here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But essentially, by the end of it, it seems like Bathsheba's life is is maybe over. She's lost respect. I mean, nobody names their kid Bathsheba, right? And it seems like, well, maybe things turned around because she ends up living in the palace, but still there's this kind of icky, dishonorable shame surrounding her story. She's a kind of person that people look at and they say, man, she had such potential What a shame. That's Bathsheba. And then, the last name in the list, Mary. Mary, the star of our beloved Christmas story, teen mom forever subjected to the whispers of the other women around. Oh, you know Mary. Yeah, that Mary. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, she, she says that he's the son of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that Mary. We all know that Mary. See, these stories, they kind of tell themselves and not in a good way. Because they're stories of, of shame and defilement and scandal. They're not the kinds of stories that your grandma wants written in the family tree. They're the blots that the family tries to cover up. I mean, you can guess where these stories lead. They don't lead anywhere good. See, on the one hand, we have Hallmark movies, which are painfully predictable. Emphasis on the predictable. Then on the other hand, you have these stories of these women and their painfully predictable emphasis on the painful. And some of these stories, they seem to turn around momentarily. A couple of them maybe even have some happy endings. Again, I encourage you to go back and read each of these stories. But then these women die Seems like their stories just kind of go down in history like a reindeer, I know. And they're recorded back there in the Old Testament and kind of just seems like they, they died out. They have no impact on anything such as life, c'est la vie. And that's kind of how our lives are. You know, you live, you have a hard run of life, and then life kicks you down, beats you up a little bit, but then you get back up. You've got some predictable parts, some painfully predictable parts, and, and then you die and the rest of the world just kind of moves on. I mean, that's just kind of the story that we're doomed to live, right? I mean, these women are no exception, are they? Or are they? See, because then let's fast forward to the book of Matthew. This guy, Matthew is writing out this list of names, writing all of the people we'd expect to be there. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah. And he starts listing off the typical all-stars. But then he gets to Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar? And then a little further, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. That doesn't seem right. And then Ruth, Bathsheba. I mean, who are these people? How did their stories get in here? I mean, clearly you would think someone would have proofread this stuff before putting it in there. They're not supposed to be there, not in this list of names. But plot twist what seemed like blots in the story of the past, what seemed like stories that should have been just forgotten and glossed over are suddenly thrown back into the spotlight for everyone to see. It's like God is saying through Matthew's pen, you remember those stories? Because I do. And you thought that they were done. You thought that, that these stories were in the past. No one was going to think about them again. You weren't going to have to look at them. But, but I have a new plan for those stories. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna sprinkle those in there. Yeah, just, just kind of sprinkle that. There we go. That's, that's how I, I want this story, my story, remembered. He included those women 
in his story. And what happens when he included those women in that story? First, he was telling the world that he sees value where other people might not. These women have value in his book. Because remember, that wasn't the case in Jesus' day. But right at the start of this story, the Christmas story, God is screaming loud and clear, hey, plot twist, I value women. You don't see that in this culture, but I do. I validate their experiences. I validate their lives and their pasts. And even though it might be easier to turn a blind eye, to look away from their stories, these blots and blemishes of the past. Instead, I'm drawing them back into the light. And I want them, I want their stories to be part of my story because they're valuable. And I want them to be a part of the greatest story ever told, the story of my son. And so then, by the time we get to Mary's part in Luke chapter 1, you can open up here with me now. You can open your Bibles. Luke chapter 1, we shouldn't be surprised when the angel says to Mary, greetings, favored woman. We have to stop and think, favored woman? We don't even know this woman. I mean, who is this woman? She's really not anyone special. I promise you, she's not. Other than she, she gave birth to this baby, Jesus. But aside from that, she's really nobody. But this phrase, favored woman, is a phrase we only see used twice in the Bible. And the idea behind it is that the person being described is graceful, charming, lovely, and agreeable. It's a phrase of honor that says, I love and I value this person. When my grandmother, my nana, was still alive, she used to call me Miha, which is actually two words that are just kind of pushed together, me and Iha, which is my daughter. Simple enough, but when you push them together and you say Miha, it has a different meaning to it. It's, it's instead of just saying my daughter, it's kind of like saying, oh, my daughter, my sweet girl, my lovely it has, it has a different meaning. It means more than it just says. That's kind of what I think of when I hear this phrase, favored woman. See, and then the angel says in Luke chapter, 30, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 30, don't be afraid, Mary. The angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Now you have to understand, this is a big deal. One, she's having a son, which we already know. Men and sons carry a lot of weight in Jesus' day. But then not only that, Mary is going to have a son who's going to do great and amazing things. He's going to make his mama proud. I mean, these are words that any mother would love to hear as they're carrying their child. 
Because we all have these worries of what's going to happen. What, is my child going to grow up to be a big bully? Or, or are they going to be a good person? I don't know. But what mother wouldn't want to hear all of the wonderful and great things that her child is going to do? God saw value in Mary, a woman that otherwise would have been unknown. And he saw value in these women that he chose to include in his story. But not only that, he was giving their stories new purpose. Their their lives, their stories were a stepping stone to the birth of the Son of God. Because without their stories, there would be no Christmas story. Let's just get that straight. In the same way that my daughter Phoebe's story is linked to my mom's story, is linked to my grandmother's story, my great-grandmother, my great-great, you can go on and on. In the same way that her story is linked to them, she wouldn't exist if my mom and my grandmother didn't exist. If you're not sure how that works, go home and ask your mother. But uh, that's just how it works, right? And so without these women... There would be no Christmas story because all of those people in the list of names wouldn't exist. By including their names in the list, God was saying, I need those women in order to write the rest of the story. I had a purpose for their lives that they never could have guessed because their lives would be directly linked to the life of my son. I mean, talk about an incredible life purpose. Like, these are the things that you wish these women would have known. I'm sure they would have loved to know this stuff back in the middle of their painfully predictable pasts. Like, hey, Rahab, plot twist. Because you lived, one day there's gonna be a guy named Jesus. He's going to save the world. Or hang in there, Tamar. I know this part of the story is really hard. But I got something planned that you don't know about. And Bathsheba? (sighs) If only you knew what could come from this, what I have in store. Plot twist. God gave these painfully predictable stories value and purpose by including them in Jesus' family tree. But what happens when God gives value to their stories and gives new purpose to their stories is that he was proving that he's able to redeem their stories. And not just their stories, but all stories, anyone's story. See, the word redeem, if you look it up online, means to compensate for the faults or bad parts of something. To do something bigger than the bad to the point that it overshadows the bad. It's like when you're driving down the street and you see a dresser or or an old coffee table on the side of the road. And it's all beat up, the paint is all worn off. But you see that and you say, I want that. And so you take it and you 
throw it in the back of your car. You take it home, you wipe it down a couple times, maybe three or four, and uh, you, you strip down the old paint, you sand it down really good. You give it a new paint job and maybe some new hardware. Maybe you even give it some new purpose. What once was like a table, you make it into like this, this lovely little entryway, hall, tree thing. I don't do this stuff, but I know some of you do. And you give it new purpose, and you make it look brand new and beautiful. You've placed value on that item when you turn toward it and you said, I want that. And you've given it new purpose despite the poor condition it was in. That's what it means to redeem. See, the stories of these women, they were pretty bad, I'm not gonna lie. But what happened when God placed their stories in this list of names is that he was essentially saying, plot twist, I know they're bad, but I want them. I want those stories, and I want them to be a part of my story. You thought you were done with these stories, but I want to redeem them. And I'm going to infuse them with my grace and with my love and overshadow the bad with my goodness. And the best part of all is that nobody is even going to see it coming. See, the whole Christmas story is actually the greatest plot twist of all. Because the story of Christmas is the climax of the story of all of humanity. See, we were headed in one direction. We were spiraling downward. And the consistent story of mankind, you can read it in scripture. The consistent story was painfully predictable. A story of shame and regret and one bad choice after another because of what we call sin. And the collective story of humanity left to tell itself ended in death. But, plot twist, God sent his son into the world in the most unassuming, unexpected way as a baby born in the back stable of a crowded inn. And because of that simple interruption, the entire story of humanity was redeemed. It was given new value. It was given purpose. And because that baby would grow up to be the hero of the story, the savior of the world, everything changed. See, in the book of Ephesians, it says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. You remember that phrase that was used to describe Mary? Favored woman? That exact phrase, there's variations of the word, but that exact phrase, I said, is only used twice, once with Mary. The other time is here. That part where it says, glorious grace that God poured out on us. That glorious grace, that's it. 
that same love and value that he saw Mary with, he sees us with. Because God values us. He sent his son, Jesus, who would grow up and die for our sins. And as a result, new purpose was made possible to us. Praising God with our lives because he chose to redeem us and write us into his story. See, the birth of that one person set the whole rest of the story of the Bible off in a new direction. Now, I don't know what your life story is, but I do know that God is able to redeem any life story. He can reveal its true value. He can give it new purpose, regardless of how bad a shape it may seem to be in. God, the author of life and the father of the greatest story ever told, wants your life story. And you say, Jessica, how do you know that though? How do you know for sure? Because of Tamar. Because of Ruth and Rahab and Bathsheba and Mary. Because when I read the very beginning of the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus Christ, plot twist, their stories are in there too. Now some of you, you may have a past that you regret. Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time, but you still have this past that's lingering like Tamar and Bathsheba and Rahab, and maybe you're ashamed of it. You think no one cares what you've gone through. But can I remind you, God sees your story. And he values your story. Because he values you. Others of you may be floating through life and feel like your story is just kind of telling itself. It's just kind of on autopilot. And you've been thinking, is this all there is? Is there more? Because maybe you've been living for one thing, one purpose, and and you still feel like you get to the end of the day wondering, is this all there is? And you need God to give you new purpose. And he can do that. In fact, he wants your life to be a part of something bigger than yourself. That's what it means when we talk around here about making a difference. It's being a part of something bigger than ourselves, being a part of what God is doing in the world. He wants your life to be a part of his story. And when you allow, his, when you allow your life to be a part of his story, he can give your story new purpose. And then maybe there's someone here today who would say, man, I just need a whole new story. My whole story is in shambles. I've been trying to piece it together, write it myself, but I just need God to take the pen and I need him to write in a plot twist. I need him to redeem it because I don't see how any good could come from my whole story. But guess what? God is in the business of redeeming stories. He wants to pour out his glorious grace on you. If God could redeem the stories of these five women And if God could redeem the story of all of humanity, God can redeem your story too. 
And so this morning before we leave, I just want to pray for you. I don't know everyone's whole life story in this room, but God does. And he wants to take a hold of your story and redeem it and give it new purpose, give it value. And so if you would, just bow your heads with me as we close in prayer. God, you see our life stories. Just like you saw the stories of those five women. But on our own, our stories don't amount to much. In fact, some of them are just, some of our stories are pretty bad. But God, we know that you redeem stories. We know that you're able to take a hold of our stories and write them into your great story. And God, there may be someone here today who'd be willing to say, I need God to take a hold of my story because I don't like where my, my story came from. I don't like where it's at. I don't like where it's headed. I just need a plot twist. And so if you would be willing to say, I just, I need a plot twist. I need God to redeem my story. Would you just be willing to raise a hand just so I can pray for you? Just say, I, I need a plot twist. I need someone to come in and redeem the parts of my story that I thought no one cared about. Yeah. God, you see these hands. Would you interrupt their lives with your goodness, with your grace and your love? Give them new purpose and new value because you value every story and every life. Thank you for the story of your son whose life changes everything. We love you. That's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, if you're someone who raised your hand and, and just asked that God would redeem your story, we would love to talk with you and just talk about what that looks like. And so come find me or one of the pastors just so we can talk about what it means to live a redeemed life. And if you didn't raise your hand, what I want to challenge you to do is look for the people in your lives that you can speak value and purpose into and point them towards the story of God. So now as we leave, would you stand and receive a word of blessing? Would you leave here this morning with a greater sense of the value and purpose that God has on your life? And would you carry out his redemption and love and grace to others? You are sent out.